Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done it gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please. John chapter 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of the people wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd does not know that, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone up to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're continuing our study of John chapter 7 this morning with Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. Things come to a climax in this passage as Jesus declares to the people in verses 37 and 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the high point, not only of this particular Feast of Tabernacles, but of every Feast of Tabernacles that has ever taken place. The one to whom the Feast of Tabernacles pointed was now telling the assembled crowds what that feast pointed to. But even as it was the crescendo of the feast, it also bought, brought division and rejection of Jesus to a crescendo. Not the ultimate crescendo, that would take place six months later at the crucifixion. But now the gloves were off. The Pharisees were displaying open hostility towards Jesus as they sought to arrest him. But we'll see in the next chapter how Jesus was also beginning to show open hostility towards them. 
In John 7, verses 37 to 39, Jesus makes an astounding offer, one with eternal ramifications. This is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the biggest feasts in the Jewish calendar. Detailed instructions for keeping it are found in Leviticus 23, verses 39 to 43. Now, the feast is also known, as we saw a few weeks ago, it's known as the Feast of Booths. People had been building shelters of branches, and they would actually live in the, these shelters for the duration of the feast, for the week-long celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was kind of like a national camping trip. Everybody was, was out there together worshiping and, and celebrating what God had done for them. Food offerings were to be made throughout this feast because this, was, this feast also was known as the Feast of Ingathering. It took place at the end of the gathering of, of the crops of olives and grapes. So people were celebrating with abundant food, the Lord's provision for them. Now, by this time, part of the celebration also included a daily libation or drink offering as water was poured out to the Lord. Also during this feast, four huge lamps in the midst of the temple were lit. They represented the Shekinah glory, the presence of God in the temple. Also represented the Heor Gadol, the great light which would come to bring light to those who were spiritually dead and dwelling in darkness. And again, we'll see the importance of these things in John chapter 8, where Jesus heals the man that was born blind, where he declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This serves as a living parable where Jesus heals the man who had been born blind. But these aspects of the celebration all pointed to God's provision for the children of Israel for his, his protection and his guidance of them as he led them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And these things we know also serve as a huge metaphor for the way that God is leading us out of bondage and captivity in the Egypt of our sin and is leading us into the promised land, his eternal promised land. But here at this time, this was the great day of the feast, likely on the eighth day. Now, this was a Sabbath. It was a day of solemn rest. And Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, throughout the scriptures, water represents purification. The earth was purified from sin by the waters of the flood. We also see it in the ceremonial washings of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Elisha told Naaman in 2 Kings 5-7, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times till your flesh be restored and you shall be clean. In the Gospels, John the Baptist baptized with water as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as we'll see, when, when Jesus heals the man born blind, he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Husbands are commanded in Ephesians 5.27 to follow Jesus in, as Jesus gave himself up for the church by washing our wives by the water of, word, of the word so that we may present them in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish. 
we're encouraged in Hebrews 10.22 to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from our, an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. John's gospel is no exception to these things. The twin themes of water and purification run as a current, no pun intended, throughout John's gospel. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, showing the replacement of the, the Jewish ceremonial washings was being replaced with the new wine of the gospel. In John 9, as I mentioned, he put mud on the eyes of the man and told him to wash in the pool of Siloam. He washes the, the disciples' feet in John 13. But I hope Jesus' words here remind you of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. We looked at that only a few weeks ago. John asked the woman, a Samaritan hated by the Jews, for a drink of water from Jacob's well. And she was incredulous. So she asked Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she didn't understand that the Messiah was offering her the gift of eternal life. But that's exactly what Jesus is offering here in John chapter 7. The Samaritan woman found life in Jesus' words, and I pray that that would be the same for each of us. That we have found life in Jesus' words. And for those who are not yet members of God's family, that all of us, all of us would find life in the words of Jesus. So Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He's here quoting Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now Jesus isn't talking here about physical thirst. Jesus didn't come primarily to meet physical needs. He did heal. He did provide food. But the provision was meant to point ultimately to spiritual provision. Without physical water, you'll die in about three days. Without spiritual water, you're already dead. So are you dying of spiritual thirst? Are you trying to quench, quench your spiritual thirst through your own works of obedience? Are you trying to quench your spiritual thirst through man-made laws? Are you trying to quench your spiritual thirst through worldly pleasures? Are you trying to quench your spiritual thirst through sinful indulgences? If you have pursued any of these things, you know that they only leave you wanting more. None of them can satisfy your spiritual thirst. Only Jesus can satisfy. Self-righteousness leaves you distant from God, apparently trying to please him when ultimately you're really trying to please yourself. Man-made laws leave you creating more and more laws and leave you prideful in obedience and guilty in disobedience. 
worldly pleasures leave you hungry for more as you're, you're always chasing some new thrill that's eventually going to bore you or some new, new possession that will eventually lose its shine. Sin is also never satisfied. It always craves more perverse and more enslaving behavior, always aiming at the most vile expression of that particular sin. John Owen said famously, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The prophet Jeremiah described the situation perfectly. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2, 13. The people there were not guilty of just one evil. They were guilty of two kinds of evil. One, they had turned their backs on God, the fountain of living waters. And two, they had sought pleasure in empty pursuits that could never satisfy. So at that Feast of Tabernacles 2,000 years ago, Jesus cried out to this thirsty people, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He cried it out then, and the offer still stands. Come to Jesus and drink. Jesus came in the, as the fulfillment of Isaiah 49.10. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. This is quoted in Revelation 7.16 and 17, which reveals that it is the Lamb in the midst of the throne that is our shepherd who guides us to springs of living water. When Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, water gushed out and quenched the thirst of the children of Israel. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that this points us to Christ. He says they all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Are you parched in the wilderness go to christ go to jesus jesus doesn't merely satisfy he doesn't just give you a little sip of water he continues in in verse 38 of john chapter 7 whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water the blessings found in jesus don't just satisfy they overflow abundantly Jesus was coming as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 12 that Joel read for us this morning. Verse 3 reads, With joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. Brothers and sisters, when we think about what we deserve, when we really think about what we deserve, If you understand your sin, you realize that you and I, we all deserve nothing but the cup of God's wrath. 
the full cup of God's wrath. Which will be experienced by those who reject Christ in eternal hellfire and separation from him. Now the gospel primer really does a good job of explaining this. Milton Vincent says that, that if we were to receive from God even an empty cup, even an empty cup from God, we would be most blessed. But we don't just receive an empty cup from God, do we? We receive a cup that is overflowing with blessings from God. Overflowing. Now, if you have found life in Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Even in the midst of, of trials, God pours out his blessing. Even when you sin against him, he poured out, pours out his blessing by giving you forgiveness in Christ. And God continues to pour out his blessing on us and will continue to do so for all eternity. Romans 8.32, we read that he who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, God did not spare his son. Think for a moment about the, the amazing blessings that you have in Jesus. And the way that God continues to bless you every single day of your life a, with a blessing that, that transcends your circumstances. So that even in the midst of profound pain, you are still able to rejoice. You are still able to, with joy, draw water from the wells of salvation. So Jesus chose that moment at the culmination of the Feast of Tabernacles to show that the Feast of Tabernacles pointed to him. I've already mentioned that by the time of Christ, a predominant aspect of the feast was the libation or drink offering. And D.A. Carson describes the ceremony. He says that, that each day of the feast, a golden pitcher would be filled with water from the pool of Siloam. And then it would be carried in a procession back to the temple where, and where as the, the procession approached, there would be three trumpet blasts from the shofar. And the temple choir would sing the Hallel. That's that in our English Bibles, that's Psalms 113 to 118. When the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim would shake branches with the right hand while holding a piece of citrus fruit in their left hand. And they would cry, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. They would do that three times. And the water would be poured out before the Lord as a drink offering. Now, in the Jewish mind, 
this would have represented the Lord's provision of water in the desert. As they wandered for 40 years through the wilderness and they continued to receive their physical provision from the Lord. God provided food in the form of manna. He provided water from the rock. Their clothes didn't even wear out during that 40 years. God provided for them all along the way. So that the, the Feast of Tabernacles was meant to point back to what God had done for them. But in the Jewish mind, it also pointed to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament explains that the blessing of the water poured forth from the sacred rock of the Most Holy would flow over the whole earth in the Messianic age. That they were looking forward to a time at the coming of the Messiah when the blessings of God and the, the, the giving of the Spirit would, would be for, for, for all nations in fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. But the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles was also tied integrally with the Lord's providing of adequate rainfall for the coming year. This comes from Zechariah 14, verses 16 and 17. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of earth do not go, go up to Jerusalem and worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Now, interestingly, this is an eschatological prophecy. This speaks of the return of Christ. So it seems that the Feast of Tabernacles will somehow be celebrated again in the future, but this time not just by Jews, but by all nations. This has already been fulfilled in Christ, but it will be fully fulfilled at his return. Zechariah 14.8 speaks of the return of Christ. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Similarly, in Ezekiel 47.1, speaks of water as issuing from below the threshold of the temple. So you can see how Jesus' statement here would have impacted his hearers. They knew some of what Jesus was talking about. But there was another blessing coming. One that they didn't really fully understand. John tells us in verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this, this, this pouring out from our hearts or from our bellies of rivers of living water is speaking to the fact that at the glorification, after the glorification of Jesus, God would pour out his Holy Spirit on his people. John explains this in verse 39. 
Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This ties back to what he was talking about also a few verses later. We looked at this last week in verses 33 and 34 where Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you you cannot come. Jesus was speaking about his glorification. He was going back to the Father, but he was doing so via the cross of Calvary. And Jesus taught his disciples in John 16, 7, that it would be better for them that he leave. How could it possibly be better for Jesus to leave? How could it possibly be better for Jesus to go to a cross? He says in John 16, 7, If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Before the Spirit could come to them, Jesus would have to depart. So Jesus was showing how the pouring out of water pointed to him. And how the water pouring out from his followers pointed to the giving of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 44, 3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and on streams of the dry ground I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. Joel echoes this promise in Joel 2, 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Jesus began to fulfill this promise after his resurrection in John 20, 22, when when he breathed his spirit on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's fulfilled in the church on the day of Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2. And Acts 20, 22, 7 quotes that, that passage from Joel 2. In Acts 2, 4 we read, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we saw that immediately at the church the gift of tongues was given. But there's many other blessings, more important blessings, that come with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so just just consider with me for a moment. I've got maybe the the top ten blessings of receiving the Holy Spirit. Number one, he gives regeneration. It's the Holy Spirit that gives new birth. We saw this in John 3.6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He gives life. Number two, this is, this is tied obviously with the first one, but the life proceeds in us from the Holy Spirit. John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. He is the helper, number three. 
We are weak, but the Holy Spirit is the parakletos, meaning helper, comforter, or advocate. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Number four, he bears witness about Jesus. One of the greatest blessings of the Holy Spirit is that he reveals Jesus to us. John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Number five, he reveals biblical truth. The Holy Spirit guided the disciples into biblical truth and guides us into biblical truth. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He is the Spirit of truth. Sorry, that's John 14, 17. Number six, he enables us to call God Father. We have been adopted into God's family through the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Number seven, he gives assurance of salvation. Now, this is tied to the previous blessing. The Holy Spirit causes us to know that we are saved. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Number eight, he intercedes for us. He fills up what is lacking in our prayer life. And he prays for us, Romans 8, 26, for we do not know what, how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself, himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Number nine, he is the guarantee of our salvation. The Holy Spirit given to us ensures that we will never lose our salvation. 2 Corinthians 1, 22, God has put his seal on us and has given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee and Ephesians 1 13 and 14 we believe we who believe in Christ were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory and number 10 he helps us to proclaim the gospel just as the disciples were promised in Luke 12 verses 11 and 12 when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Ten glorious blessings that we receive in receiving the Holy Spirit through belief in Jesus Christ. Do you want that? Do you want those rivers of living water to flow out from your life for the glory of God? I trust that the majority, the vast majority of us here would wholeheartedly say yes and amen. But like we've seen through John's gospel, Jesus brings division. Jesus brings division. Some people believe in him, while others reject him. Sadly, many who heard Jesus' words on that day were dying of thirst, and they didn't even realize it. 
And there might even be people in this room who are in that same predicament. So look at the reaction of the crowds first in verses 40 to 44. In verse 40, we find out that when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. We've talked about this before. Some believe that Jesus was the eschatological prophet, the prophet who would come at the end times in fulfillment of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. They were on the right track. Jesus was the prophet that Moses was talking about. But he was so much more. In verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. They saw Jesus not just as the prophet, but as the Messiah. They saw what Jesus was doing. They heard what he was saying. And they believed that he really was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But still others challenge this assertion. We looked at this last week in verses 41 and 42. They asked, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that when Christ, that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They knew that the Messiah was to be of the line of David. First Chronicles 17 talks about the way that, that David said that he would build a temple for the Lord. You build a house for God, but God said instead, David, I will build you a house. And one of your sons will build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. This is remembered in Psalm 89, 3 and 4. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. We know that Jesus was of the line of David, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In Jesus, God the Son, the Father was establishing the throne of David forever and ever, but in a way that went immeasurably beyond anybody under the old covenant could have understood. That this was God the Son, that the throne of David would be established in the throne of the Most High God. The crowds knew also that the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem, the place of David's birth. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem Rephatha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, one whose coming is from old, from the ancient of days. They wrongly thought that Jesus was from Nazareth, the home of his adopted father Joseph, and the place where Jesus was raised. But we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. But the people were divided. Some thought he was the prophet. Some thought he was the Messiah. Some thought this was ridiculous. And some wanted to seize him. The ASV translates verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now the Greek word there for, for arrest is piazzo, which, which can be translated arrest. 
it could therefore refer back to the, the temple guard who had been dispatched by the Pharisees to arrest Jesus in verse 32. But it could also refer to the desires of the angry mob whose hearts were already hardened to Jesus and his message and they wanted to seize him. But either way, no one laid hands on him because his time had not yet come. Finally, we see the reaction of the religious authorities in verses 45 to 52. And their reaction is divided too. The scene now moves from the, the scene of the crowd at the Temple Mount to a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. In verse 45, the temple guard returned to the chief priests and the Pharisees, having failed in their, mess, in their mission to arrest Jesus. And so the Sanhedrin asked the officers, why did you not bring him? And they answered, no one ever spoke like this man. A.T. Robertson says that police officers are not usually carried away by public speech, but they had fallen under the power of Jesus. And the Pharisees are fuming, so they spit out the words, have you also been deceived? Not only had the officers failed to do their duty, but they had come back impressed by Jesus, just like the crowds. Their worst fears were being realized. Jesus was gaining popularity with the masses, and their power was waning. Their own power was in jeopardy. So they continued, have any of the officers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Their point is this, who are you going to side with? The religious authorities who have rejected Jesus, the teachers of the law, who do not recognize Jesus as anything but a heretic, or as the, the uneducated masses, as the crowd who doesn't know the law and is accursed, those who believe in him. Paul explains in verse 1, Sorry, in 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But then in verse 51, from an unexpected part of the room, a voice speaks up. It's Nicodemus who we met in John 3, the Pharisee who came to Jesus at night. And so he asks them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Think about what Nicodemus is saying here. The Pharisees had just condemned the crowd as accursed, saying that they don't know the law. But Nicodemus is showing that it is the Pharisees themselves who are going against the law. By condemning Jesus, and the crowds without first giving a hearing. Now, we probably had Deuteronomy 1.7 in mind. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Their response to Nicodemus is less than positive. They reply in verse 52, Are you from Galilee too? 
Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And now they're showing even more ignorance of the scriptures. Prophets did come from Galilee. 2 Corinthians 14.25 says that, that Jonah was from gath Hefer, which was in Galilee. Elijah, too, was possibly from Galilee. 1 Kings 17.1 says that Elijah was from Tishbe in, Galilee, in Gilead, also likely Galilee. So to a measure, Nicodemus was standing up against the Pharisees. But this wasn't exactly a bold declaration of dedication to Jesus. It is nonetheless a step in the right direction. We'll see what happens to Nicodemus after the crucifixion. But for now, John 12, 42 and 43 seems to describe him very well. Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. But after the resurrection and the work of the Spirit in the church, belief in Jesus went even to the hearts of some of these men. Acts 6-7 declares, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In the power of the Holy Spirit, even many of these hard-hearted men turned away from their legalism turned away from their man-made laws, turned away from self-righteousness, turned away from the pleasures of the world and the flesh, and found faith in Jesus. May that be true of each one of us. Come to me, any who thirst, says the Alpha and Omega, the last and the first. Why be satisfied with less than the best than finding salvation in he who promises you rest? Out of your heart living water shall flow the work of the Spirit within you to show. The Holy Spirit you all will receive, only repent and upon the Christ believe. The Spirit guarantees our inheritance as a seal. He helps us proclaim the gospel with zeal. Come to Jesus and receive new birth from above. You will live eternally in the fullness of his love. Let's pray.